Yeah, on. What's James talking about? I don't know. Keep saying yeah. 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 <laughs> I was kind of going more for the Howard the Duck, you know? Howard the Duck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Howard the Duck. Have you watched Howard the Duck like in the last you know, 20 years? I haven't. I, you know, it's probably either like phenomenal or awful. I'll tell you what, though. I, I've got the, the um, uh, my next, uh, my next film that I'm going to watch is uh, the dirt bike kid you know the old uh what was that kid's name robert billingsley the <laughs> the christmas story kid oh, oh yeah like the other movie he was in the dirt yeah, the bike other movie kid. the yeah. dirt bike kid yeah so i you know same thing with that it's either gonna be it's probably gonna be amazing either way it's either gonna be like great or just awful but probably <laughs> you know let us not forget your favorite of all of the you know, eighties. Um, what is it? What would that genre be called? We need to name that genre, but the sort of bad eighties movies with activities in like sport, like sports or activities. Yeah. Right. Not really like, sports. Cause like those are, are bring, good. Are you going to bring up rad? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, that, I, mean, I mean, that is, that's, yeah, but, that's your, that's your penultimate, but rad is legitimately amazing. I mean, come on, like, you know, you got crew Jones, it's a BMX movie, right? Um, you know, you got the bad guy, the blonde, not the karate kid guy, but similar, right? Bart, what's his name? Bart, uh, whatever, you know? And then of course the Reynolds twins. I mean, you know, you love those the, Reynolds twins, the scene when they're playing sparks and the rental and they're at the dance and the Reynolds twins get on either side of that chick. And they're like pretty much grinding her and sort of each other. It's just amazing. You know, it's like a bicycle grind. Well, and then, well, the bicycle boogie is when they well, play yeah. send me an angel. And he and um, who's the gal that went to jail for uh, getting her kid into USC? Uh, the the Full House gal. Um, she's very hot. Lori Life. Lori Laughlin. Lori Laughlin. Uncle, Uncle Jesse's wife. Yeah, super hot. And I think didn't she go to jail? She like yeah faked a bunch of transcript info for her kid to get into USC or something funny. It's like another that. thing. To, I was thinking. Yeah, I've been thinking about that. Like, and I'm no lawyer or judge or anything, but like. Jail seems awfully harsh for that. I mean, I understand that like on some level it's fraud, but with all the things that people are doing nowadays and not going to jail and getting away with it, it just oh. felt very strange that like she went to jail for that. Like you can't be out in society for that. Uh, I mean, there, you know there's I mean? obviously some, there's some selective uh, uh, justice out there, but, uh, but you know, you also have to make an example of those folks, you know I mean? You That's can't, what it is. Yeah. You know, you can't be like blatantly lying to get your kid into a certain college. That's just, you know. So she did that scene, right, where they're in slow motion and they're like, they're like doing all the bike tricks and everyone makes a circle around them at the dance. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And it's also pretty amazing that this is a pr presumably a high school dance. And even at that stage, Lawyer Laughlin was had to be at least 30. 
uh, you know, oh, really? you think playing, so? playing a high school girlfriend. I don't know. I mean, don't you think both she and crew Jones well, and the Reynolds twins for that matter, they all looked a little old to be in high school. Yeah. But they? see, don't you think that's a thing when you look back at those movies and people just looked older then yeah. in general, I think yeah. it had to do with styles, hairstyles for sure, especially on chicks, but people just looked older back then. You look back and it's like, Oh, they were, 24, but they actually look 35. Well, and I bet nine times out of 10, they actually were older. You know, they were definitely older. I don't, I don't the only ones 30s. that really pulled, like the Corey's pulled it off. They were legit, legit teenagers, like, like licensed to drive. Those guys were actual like high school age, which that movie rules, by the way. Yeah. yeah licensed to drive. Great. Um, who played Mercedes Lane? Um, Roller Heather, Girl. Heather Graham. Yeah. Heather Graham. My yeah. Goodness. Dear Lord. But the best character in the whole movie is the driving instructor for sure. The cup yeah. was empty. Okay, Anderson. Yeah. You burn me, you fail. <laughs> I wanted you to parallel park right here. Anderson. I love when, when at the end, when he goes, the cup was empty. Then he goes, see you on the battlefield, soldier. You know, <laughs> That's a great line. He's just talking about driving like out on the road. And he says, see you on the battlefield. Probably the line of the movie right there. You're yeah, totally it's, right. Yeah, It's so good. Well, well speaking of hot, uh, you know, uh, 80s uh, gals, I think that's a segue to... It, dude, it's so hard to know where to start on this album and on this band. And, and, you know, this was really kind of the midpoint for this band. So a lot of people think of In Excess as, as a group that, you know, obviously came to mostly U.S. recognition with tonight's record, which was their sixth album, you know. So, so you know, this is a band that had been at it for a while. Um, but for all intents and purposes, you know, took them a while to kind of get where we're talking about today. But hey, hey, T, I, I, you know, if you don't mind, I have a place to start. Sure. OK, so Lord knows I've hijacked plenty of your show. So go ahead. Well, speaking yeah. of 80s movies. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to say that, you know, some of the boys and I, we got together and chipped in and. Bought you this gift. Got you this gift, yeah. So I have a gift to present to you right now. Really? Yeah. I have a musical gift for you. Okay. Oh, is this a record that you have like eight copies of and you're going to give me one of your dupes? No. Oh, okay. No. This, uh, this, will, <laughs> this will definitely not be a dupe because I'd love to keep this item. All right. But I was, it, is, it is from record shopping. And I came across what is, what is definitely now a highly collectible item. Oh. And uh, I just thought you would like it because you, you've got your, you know, so your setup. We've talked about your albums of the year behind you. And yeah. you know, you've got a lot of other kind of musical tchotchkes and things like that. Yeah. So, so but yeah. what, I, what I found for you and what I bought for you is a oh, old brand new copy of the original Digipack release of wow. wherever you are. So you can see it's got the hype sticker on it. That is fantastic. Yeah. It's never been opened. And Thank now you, man. you can, you can have this in its total original form. You know, that is super cool. And, and it's, and it's very, thank you by the way. And that is, interesting that you bring that record up. We're going to talk about that record a little bit. I knew we would. Yeah. Because you know, well, we'll get to it. Let's, and for people who don't know this, this was a very, very limited run of what they called eco packs, not digit packs, but eco packs or eco pack. Yeah. That's and right. the idea was that remember how CDs originally came in that big, long box. Now they call them long boxes, but it was a, it was a long cardboard box. CD was at the bottom of it and the cover box had all this graphics and things on it. Well, 
they wanted to keep the same orientation, but they decided that they'd turn the CD packaging into the long box. Right. Now, this did not last long at all. In fact, I think there's only a couple albums I don't know of that actually had the EcoPack packaging. Yeah. But basically, it's the outside packaging, and then it folds into what becomes sort of a digipack. Honestly, like when I think of that album, I always think of the EcoPack, right? Like the cover, the 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 folding thing. It's it's like you know, it's certainly one of those where before the songs, before even the artwork itself, I always think of the packaging, which is uh, you know, kind of weird and funny. It's a real timepiece. It is. And, and, uh, yeah. and when I saw it, I was like, this, Tofu would really want this. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, we can talk about if uh, not only have you had any good sounding albums of recent, but hey, let's talk about the packaging of them as well as we go round and round. Come on. Nubs, what are your three LPs? that you've been absorbing and also do you have any you know notes or um elements of interest tied to the packaging good buddy <laughs> yeah it's funny because i know deep down you hate when i talk about packaging. no i, I don't <laughs> i i'm just as much of a kind of nerd about that stuff as you are really yeah yeah but i the, the only thing i don't like is when you instead of saying cover some of an album sometimes you say sleeve and it's oh, like, what well, it is. It's what it is. It's eh, a like a cover is a cover, a sleeve's a sleeve. I don't think those two things are the same. That cover only refers to the front. The sleeve, you know, it's the front and the back, right? Mm, maybe episode 70, we hash this out. <laughs> anyway, go ahead, buddy. What's rounding around? So I, what's, what's honestly, dude, what's been rounding around a lot for me lately is a band that we've t- referenced in the podcast more times than I ever thought we would which is hilarious. And that is the band puddle of mud. I think it's been like four or five episodes that we've referenced this group. We have it's weirdly yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, really both of their albums that were released sort of in their heyday, which has come clean and life on display. I love both of these albums so much. Maybe it's become like a guilty pleasure, but complete clean of course had, you know, the lead single, on it, which people compared to Nirvana, which I will never understand, but the lead single control. And that was the whole thing with, I like the way you smack my ass. That was kind of why that became uh, popular, which is hilarious. Cause like listening to a dude talk about, it, he likes the way someone smacks his ass. It's not the most appetizing. I forgot about ever, that song, yeah. but that was the, actually the lead single. And then blurry was like the smash it. You know, can you take it all away? That, that whole thing, which but, that song's awesome. Blur is fabulous. Yeah, it's really. But good. the best song on the record is "Drift and Die," the second track, and that's that's one that I've been listening to a lot. And then uh, the third would be a kind of obscure album, but by a band that I've always really liked, which is Prong, and that is Scorpio Rising. Once again, from two thousand three. I do feel like I'm doing this early two thousands nostalgia thing. A lot of good hard rock music and metal music from that era. And that Prong album is something that I never heard before. I, I found a copy on CD and bought it, and. Like all prong things, it's very good. It's very headbanging, if you will. Snap your fingers, snap your neck, which you can do while you listen to prong, mm-hmm. as they instructed. So, so that's it, man. Two puddle of mud albums and a prong album. So, well, you doubled up on those guys, huh? I did, all I right. indeed did. So, T, what is round and round for you? I got uh, new stuff. The first is uh, this really cool band that just came out, and they're called Duran Duran. Um, and uh never heard of them yeah future past so i haven't heard it i I just got it today 
Um, actually, I haven't heard any of these three yet, but I'm planning for them to go around. Oh, this is like a a presumptive round and round. Yeah. This is like a upcoming weekend round and round deal. I heard the single, the the first single off the Duran record. Yeah. And it is really good. Oh, good. Good. Really good. Well, you know, they're, they're newer. And when I say that, I mean like last 10 year stuff has been pretty, pretty good. I mean, these guys still know what they're doing, right? Yeah. I remember you liked Astronaut a lot. You liked that album. I didn't really like Red Carpet Massacre. I thought that was kind of Yeah, it wasn't great. But the, uh, what was the other? Uh, All You Need Is Now was like amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You really liked that one too. Good Lord. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second is uh, your favorite band, uh, My Morning Jacket. Again, haven't heard it. Um, It's self-titled. And it's probably going to be really boring, but self-titled. That means like, Oh, we've restarted. We've rediscovered our roots. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) you know, I, I have low expectations, but, uh, my morning jacket. The third is a great band I've talked about on here before. I'm not sure if you're going to check them out yet, nubs, but this is Biffy Clyro, the Scottish, uh, uh, prog, prog pop, I guess outfit. This record is called The Myth of the Happily Ever After. Not a very uplifting title, is it? But uh, looking forward to, you know, those guys, it's, it's great. You know, they're so, they're so unique and often complex and, and proggy that it's, it's fun to kind of see what direction they're going. They're almost like uh, another band I love called Everything, Everything. That just is sort of experimental and you never know what they're going to bring. So looking forward to that. You can kind of see this coming. When you kind of revisit how we got to this smash record, and this was a big deal from a band that had been around for a while, but it had really kind of spent its first five records sort of figuring out what they wanted to be when they grew up, you know, and there's a lot of themes to this. Um, you know, we're going to talk about the, the guy behind the guy. A little bit. What do you think of when I say guy behind the guy? I think of swingers. Honestly, dude, I, I'm just so excited to talk about Michael Hutchins. <laughs> so we, are you? you say guy behind the guy, I was thinking about is like him, you know, looking so beautiful. And <laughs> I, I just, he's like one of my all time man crushes. Well, dude. I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about the guy behind him, <laughs> but the guy behind the guy that really yeah. made the magic happen. You know? So I, I, it'll be a good debate because I, I have a thought on who that is on this record and it might not be who you're thinking, mm. but, um, I just can't wait to talk about my collagens. Well, you I know, just, the- this has given me an excuse to go back and watch. It's just so sad because, you know, he died so young, but, um, I just really love him. Yeah, he was, he was <laughs> really something. Do, he, he was something. God. How um, lucky are we? We'll get into one of the stories yeah. that we got to see him. Oh, in yeah. all of his glory. V- very much. So you had very sexy music being made, being sung by an extremely sexy front man that was written by probably the most unsexy man I've ever seen in my life. It's <laughs> an amazing call. You're totally right. Right. You're totally right. But this guy was really the king of the lick at this point, the king of the riff and the progression. I mean, he, you know, well, clearly he was onto something here. You know, you've got the most compressed guitars you've ever heard in your life. That'll be interesting. I mean, when these guys play live, it's almost comedic, uh, the tone, but it's so distinctive and it's so perfect for what it does. This clean compressed tone. 
I thought for years that live baby live was just all overdubbed and it's not. Yeah. But yeah. you're right, man. It almost, it's like so pristine. It almost sounds fake. You know, I didn't figure it out until like two years ago, live baby live also reads as live baby live, which is obviously the first line of track two in this record. Right. When did you figure that out? But like recently, <laughs> like not that long ago, you know, oh, like, okay. like, okay. Like 20 years after the thing came out, right? So, yeah. okay. That makes one of us more than 20 years. Yeah. So, oh, sorry. You're smarter than I am. <laughs> you got to talk about the producer. Yeah. You got to talk about the manager. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to this, but let's start by digging into this thing with those nerdy dates. Let's go. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? All right, NXS kick. Sometimes you kick, sometimes you get kicked. Was released on October 12th, 1987. So, so hey, this thing just celebrated its 34th birthday, if I'm not mistaken, right? Am I doing the math right? Carry the two. So next year, this thing will turn 35. It was their sixth album. Uh, NXS was sort of coming off of really its entry point into the U.S. with um, a record called Listen Like Thieves, uh, which had sort of their, I guess, their breakthrough single, certainly in the U.S. I would say two breakthrough singles, What You Need and the title track were both relatively successful, but What You Need, I think, was the, that was the one. Right. I mean, yeah. um, Yeah. And this time was a pretty decent, you know, hit too. So these guys had certainly, you know, gotten their foot in the door with the U S audience. And it's one of those deals where, you know, they were kind of fixing to explode. A lot of people could sense that, but you know, not everyone was a believer during the development of kick and we'll get to it. It uh, it was nominated for the Grammy. They lost to U2 because who didn't at that time, but for best rock performance, Grammys are so stupid. You know, there's, there's best album, there's best song. And then there's like this best performance thing. It's like, what does that mean? And then I guess it could be a song or an album is like kind of dumb, you know, but yeah. Proof that the Grammys were just as up its own ass in 1987 as it is now right yeah so who should pay attention who cares yeah kind of weird uh, I, this, the thing too is the song of the year and then the record of the year like yeah, it took right? me a long yeah. time to figure that one out exactly yeah. like it's yeah. so dumb this had four top five singles uh, obviously some you know iconic tunes here from the mid 80s as it as it was nxs was a was a weird band early on you know they they it's probably there are a lot of bands like this where you kind of listen to their breakthrough record and then you go back and like check out the early stuff. And it's just like, is it, are these even the same guys, you know, cause everything was different. I mean, the musicality was different. The instrumentation was different. Even Hutchins's vocals were pretty different. They were sort of a new wave sky kind of thing. It was a weird, unique, very Australian ish, you know, kind of hodgepodge of, some kind of weird blend between like men at work uh, and uh, in, in sort of the English pop new wave thing sort of all mashed together. It was very 
it's fairly schizophrenic. It was a band that you could tell wasn't quite sure what it was trying to do just yet. And every album, you know, they seem to evolve and get closer and closer to a distinctive sound and a sound that was more and more radio friendly and a sound that was more and more breakthrough, you know, and obviously kick was really the pinnacle of that, but you could kind of see this coming certainly from the couple of albums before this, but it's a band that's always kind of funny to go back and listen to their really early work because it's sort of strange if you if you really go back and, and dig through it. You know, what's interesting to you is the description you just gave describes a few other bands for sure. And the two that come to mind, the first one you've already mentioned once, U2. You know, go back and listen to those early U2 albums. It sounds nothing like what that band became. I, I think a lot of that was they, they just weren't very good you know, just as players of their respective instruments and they had to really develop and they, they did develop their sound, but it took them some time. The other peer of NXS that I think really follows the same model is simple minds. Now I love the first couple simple minds albums, but they're, they're very, very different. They're, they're very jangly. They're very new wavy. Yeah. And then they developed into much more of a polished sound. And again, producers had a lot to do with that. And started making, you know, hit songs. And so, and those are just two examples. I think there's many others, particularly in the 80s. It's a different era. Like people were just not like amazing at their instruments just to start like they are nowadays, you know, right. with School of Rocks and all these sort of resources and kids buying instruments a lot younger and instruments being much, much more affordable now than they used to be. The development of a musician now happens much earlier than it did then. It's all fantastic points. And the other thing is that bands didn't sort of have to be great right away. Correct. Now they, they yep. could sort of, you know, get a record deal, develop a little bit of a following, play some live shows, open for some bigger bands. You know, you didn't have to like come on right away and sort of prove instant commercial success in order to, to sort of have a secure um, progression and evolution into kind of your band working on its craft and improving. And, you know, they, these were days where, um, to your point, I think those are great examples where, where bands really had the ability to kind of do that. Not everyone can be puddle of mud, you know, just come out in their first <laughs> album and just crush it. <laughs> just you know? be amazing right away. Yeah, it's true. It's but true. It's, yeah. it's actually an interesting example. We just continue to talk about puddle of mud. But, yeah. Now, now we're doing the, I mean, I think we're gonna have to find a way to weave puddle of mud into every episode. Absolutely. For now, you know? But to your point, a lot of this was business aspects too. There were much fewer record labels back then. And labels would take the time and the energy and the relationships to, to build investment in their artists. A band like puddle of mud signed to Fred Durst label who like two years before had become a star. So of course he gets his own label and, and before you know it hit song all over the place. So it was a totally different process back then. And one that is more interesting without question to follow. And those early in excess albums, while they're not my favorites by any means, they do help tell the story. You can kind of follow this band's progression from the start. Yeah, they sure do. There was one guy part of this project though, that did start extremely hot. So it kind of did the opposite. There was no, there was no evolving here. And that is Chris Thomas, the producer. So the first two records that Chris Thomas worked on, now pay attention now, Nub. The first record was called The Beatles, otherwise known as The White Album. And the second was another one called Abbey Road. 
by the same, uh, by the same band, right. By the same band. So, um, so, so he, you know, he wasn't credited with a production credit, but was involved in co-production with this guy named George Martin, who also produced a few albums in his day and, uh, was heavily involved in mixing. Now, if I didn't get you on the last one, I'm going to get you on this one, buddy. He proceeded to work with this band you may have also heard of called Roxy Music and this artist called Brian Ferry on several projects. Uh, he mixed this album called Dark Side of the Moon in 1973. Do I need, should I go on? I mean, do I need to keep going? No, I, I remember earlier when you asked about the guy behind the guy, this yeah. was who I was talking about. I mean, Chris Thomas <laughs> well, is so vital to this album. Yeah, it's true. And he and he's he's one of the guys behind the guy, right? So I guess there are two. But and then he, you know, obviously started with this band in excess with the aforementioned Listen Like Thieves record, which certainly was their entry point into this American audience. So they were able to partner with a guy who knew exactly what he was doing in a studio environment, but clearly had proven the chops to be able to produce something that is not only a bit more modern at this time, but a bit more forward thinking and front footed at this time. This, some of the sounds that NXS was proposing via instrumentation, via beat, I mean, they were actually concerned this would be tough on the radio because it had so much like sort of R&B and groove mixed with pop, mixed with rock. You know, the, the, the famously, the Atlantic executive, the first time he heard Kick, said that he would pay um, Chris Murphy, who's the manager of the band, he would pay him a million dollars to scrap Kick and go back and write a new album. And Chris Murphy kind of figured out, because he believed in it so much, and thank goodness he did, to get this thing through the red tape. But Chris Thomas, the producer, certainly had an ability to take these songs that certainly foundationally were pretty special, but man, did he bring them to life and create a sound and an ambience that was great for radio and was really something that in a lot of ways, pop rock fans in 1987 hadn't heard much of before. He did a lot of things technically to support the album. His credentials prove that. But the intangible that he brought to this band was confidence, and they needed that. And Michael Hutchins talks about that. If you watch some interviews with Hutchins talking about Kick, which I highly recommend because then you can gaze into those beautiful eyes and that <laughs> exquisite hair of his. My God, he had great hair. Great hair. He talks about that the band came in with a ton of energy and enhanced confidence. And Chris Thomas, it doesn't take long for that name to come up. So a good producer, like a good head coach knows how to draw up the X's and O's, but most importantly, gives his artists confidence, allows them to play with a bit of swagger, which my goodness, does this album have a lot of swagger to it and to be your very best at every moment of the process. And what you're hearing here is tremendous production from a technical perspective, but you're hearing a band that's at its most confident without question. And that goes a long way, man. I was hearing you talk about Hutchins. Are you, I mean, are you sweating over there? I can, I think I see a bead of sort of glaze. You okay? Or? Profusely. Yeah. Well, you're not the only one. Let me tell you something. Can uh, we talk about packaging yet? <laughs> I've got. <laughs> on, on kick? 
Yeah, Kick. Sure. You said you want to hear some packaging. I got the vinyl copy of Kick. Yeah. Have you ever looked at the inside of the gatefold? I have not. Ooh, that's super cool. Isn't it cool? So it's got kick in big letters, K-I-C-K with the with the I black and the other letters red. But then what do you see on the side there? A very sexy sort of (laughs) side image of Mr. Hutchins. But it's a strange sleeve, isn't it? It's got these weird pictures of skateboard shoes and a hand and I'm not sure what they were going for, but, but what does stand out is the, the, the logo. And yeah. what's very clever is just the INXS, the stars, and then KICK. I remember that as a kid, just thinking that was cool. Yes. You know, very, that resonated. Cool, yeah. very cool branding, very cool kind of attitude through the artwork and, and the white background too. Right. I mean, this was sort of everything was kind of floating and it was, it was neat. It was, it was, it was neat visually. So, you know, why don't we talk about your boyfriend for a minute? And, uh, you know, that this band was formed in uh, 1977 and appropriately they were called the Ferris brothers because this band is made up of a bunch of brothers. Okay. You got three of them. So essentially, you know, besides Hutchins, you had uh, a guy who played some, uh, guitar and sax, which obviously is a very important piece of this sound you know, on all NXS records, but certainly kick. And then you had, uh, uh, Jerry, Gary beers who played bass, who, you know, word has it. They only had him join the band because he owned a van. But, uh, other than that, those two guys and Michael Hutchins, you had three brothers, multi instrument players here. Uh, you had John who, played drums and percussion and backing vocals and some keyboard stuff. You had Tim who played a little bit of everything. Uh, and then of course the real guy behind the guy in this band, which is Andrew Ferris and uh, Andrew played everything, some percussion, some background vocals, some piano, some guitar, some keyboards, some harmonica on stage. He was typically playing keyboards but the brothers, you know, particularly Andrew and and uh, Tim kind of swapped around on a lot of instruments. It was part of the fun of watching this band live is, you know, those three brothers, while, you know, generally John stays on drums, um, you can tell that these guys are really quality musicians and can play a lot of different things. But when it comes to the composition of not just kick, but, you know, primarily most of NXS's material musically. Andrew Ferris is really the one that deserves that credit. The true guy behind the guy of this band. You know, it's so notorious, Nub, this sort of storyline of bands that are made up of brothers and how much trouble that usually causes. You know, you look at Black Crows and Oasis and Space Hog and, you know, uh, several others where you know, you got brothers in bands and it ends up being the downfall. This band was like the opposite. The brothers were freaking fine. It was their, uh, you know, front man that kind of <laughs> caused a lot of the drama and a lot of the issues, particularly, you know, as things got sort of later in, in their career. But it's very interesting, I think, dynamic here. And it's sort of part of that Australian thing. And, you know, these were pretty laid back guys and pretty humble guys really until, Um, you know, things sort of blew up and went a little crazy here in the late eighties and beyond, but you know, the brothers were never the problem in this band nub, but boy, you can really sense the chemistry between those guys 
And then you pair them with a vocalist like Hutchins and it all kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. The, you know, the Ferris brothers are the engine of NXS. They are musically composition, all the examples of kind of what we've already talked about with just the unique playing styles. Michael Hutchins was the eighties version of Jim Morrison. You know, he kind of looked like him and his presence was very similar to Morrison's. Maybe he wasn't quite as like criminally edgy as Jim Morrison was, but he was such a, like a Jim Morrison disciple in the way that his charisma, his voice almost crooned a little bit like Morrison. He had these stunning good looks and he was, you know, the, the women loved him and the guys wanted to sort of be him. And, and he also kind of wreaked havoc on his band, just like Jim Morrison did. I mean, so the parallels are all over the place. Boy, both looked really good in a set of leather trousers, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. And without a shirt on. I, I'm yeah. not sure I really, I don't, I don't have great imagery of either one of these guys with shirts on. Who looks better shirtless and with leather pants, Michael Hutchins or Jim Morrison? Go. Who is it, Nub? I'm going to say Michael Hutchins. Mm. Mm. But Jim Morrison, you know, he looked damn good too. Oh, shirtless man, and tough. leather pants. That's tough. Yeah. I, I think it's a tie. I can't, I can't really. I don't know. I don't know. Both are so dreamy, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it's always been kind of a thing that I've uh, connected to in excess is he was kind of the eighties, Jim Morrison, the Ferris brothers, you know, I, I, I am intrigued by the fact that they're brothers who really got along well. Cause that's, you're right. That usually goes sideways in a band. It's almost like that battle between who's irreplaceable. If you took Hodgins out of an excess, you have basically what you've had the last 20 plus years, which is strong songs sung by people who are capable. If you take the Ferris brothers out of an excess, you lose pretty much all of it, you know? So they were very codependent and that's what happens in great bands. Yeah, great point. And and Michael Hutchins died uh, November 22nd, 1997. You know, one of the certainly more notorious and and certainly more, you know, saddening uh, rock star, you know, deaths. Um, His death was not through uh, autoerotic asphyxiation, which was a big uh, sort of wise tale within the uh, music community and the media for a long time. It was by suicide and Hutchins was in a really bad place, you know, and, and this has been documented through, you know, some recent documentaries as well as that goofy, uh, that goofy in excess movie was that on VH one or something, which, you know, it's actually pretty good. You know, it's, it's two parts and it takes you through their whole start to finish and, you know, the actors do a good job. It's not, it's not easy doing that. Right. I mean, making sort of a dramatization of a band is never terribly easy, but I actually think they did a pretty good job with it. Hutchins as a personality, as a front man, you know, he's an Aussie who liked to party, uh, liked to, uh, dig into the indulgences certainly of, of rock and roll at the time, but was also to your earlier point, a very sweet, rather soft-spoken Aussie who I think just kind of got caught up in a little too much and started to kind of pile a few too many blocks uh, on top of themselves. And and eventually it was, you know, probably going to topple over in some way or another. 
definitely caused a lot of drama and problems for his band, although they always sort of found a way to plow through and certainly got himself into a very sort of odd, toxic uh, relationship with one Paula Yates, uh, who is a British, uh, I guess she was sort of a media personality, rock journalist kind of a type of person. Um, she, there's this famous, uh, she had this show called the big breakfast and she would interview rock stars, uh, on her bed. And there's this extremely famous interview with Michael Hutchins. This was before they were technically publicly dating, but apparently they had already been having an affair because Paula was married to Bob Geldof, uh, and they had children and, you know, uh, was a whole family situation and Hutchins I think had a girlfriend but you watch this interview and it's like you know they're like snuggled up and like they're acting like they've known each other for years which they perhaps had and then of course you know months later you know she divorces Bob Geldof and he leaves whoever he was with probably more than one and they end up a thing they have a daughter there you go but it was uh, it was a bad situation, right? And there were issues with you know Paula being able to bring their daughter, who was named Tiger, um, to Australia, and drama between Michael Hutchins and Geldof, and the whole situation that just seemed very toxic and very ugly, and put um, Hutchins in a bad place. And you mix that with a lot of substance abuse. And, you know, which included, you know, alcohol, cocaine, pills, these are all things that were found in his system when he died. It just seems like a guy that was in a, a pretty, you know, dark place. And boy, it's always sad for, you know, when you think about the remaining band members, and we've talked about this with a few other examples, and Cruise, and, you know, this was a global brand and a global outfit here. And Obviously, you know, you have so many people affected, but it's always pretty amazing when you look at these stories and realize, you know, the amount of pain a guy like him must have been in. It just seemed like a spiral with him that um, eventually, probably inevitably in many, uh, in the views of many sort of met its end. But one of the sad ones, Nub, certainly, uh, as far as uh, rock stars uh, disappearing um, quicker than they should have, right? For sure, man. And, uh, I know our wonder stories are going to touch on some personal experiences that we had. Indeed. Let's do it. Wonder stories. Nub, you know, there are a few shows, um, you know, obviously we've been to a lot of great ones, but man, there are a handful where you look back and it's like, thank God. You know, and I'm I'm sure we're about to talk about one, but uh, what's your wonder story, bud? Yeah, you know, we'll talk about two because it's it's almost bookends of uh, of experiences like that. So, in terms of discovering in excess, I mean, it's common story as we've told before. I think a lot of it comes back to our mom, who had great music taste and raised us right musically. She was very into in excess. I think she was very into Michael Hutchins uh, too. You know, she. She didn't have a poster of him on her wall like she did of Rick Springfield and Kip Winger. You know, we were seven years old when Kit came out. I remember, you know, a little bit of What You Need just because it was such an identifiable riff and song. But this album was monumental for kids who grew up in the 80s. The Devil Inside video, 
and the song that was a very edgy single for its time. But I remember more than anything, probably need you tonight, mediate the video, right? With the cards mocking the Bob Dylan video from back in the sixties. And uh, there was something about that. That was just so incredibly cool. Growing up, that was a big deal, but we actually, you know, we didn't get to see an excess until years later. I think I'll let you tell the story of the first show because it's a little bit more in your wheelhouse, the tour that we saw and just the way that that whole experience came together. I want to talk more about the last time that we saw in excess. And this was in 1997. This was just a few months before Michael Hutchins died. It's one of the things that made that death when we were 17 years old really hit home because it was like, wow, I just saw this guy perform. And it was on the Elegantly Wasted tour. And by this time, in excess was more of like a a standard, you know, to your point earlier, they they were not a hot band and they were doing, you know, festival circuits. And in our case, uh, radio station circuits. So these radio stations at the time, which had gained tremendous power in the music industry, were putting on these like festivals. So it was like a, a station festival and in excess was one of the headliners at a rather large venue, Pine Music Theater in, in Metro Detroit. And, you know, we went because of a lot of other bands, but seeing NXS at this time would have been very cool. Not as exciting as the first time we saw them. And they came out and were great in that sort of, you know, elder statesman kind of way. And Michael Hutchins still owned the stage and looked great and sounded amazing. And, you know, it, it was a very, very good night. You left going, man, NXS is still really, really good. Almost felt legacy. You know, almost felt a little nostalgic in a way. This is 10 years after Kit came out. I just remember thinking, wow, you know, he still can really own a stage and command an audience. And good thing we were there because just a few short months later, you know, he was gone. And his death certainly came as a shock at 17. It was a big deal. Well, um, and when we saw the first time we saw them was when the Catherine Wheel opened, right? That's at right. The, exactly. At the big arena, which was, uh, when we went to the elegantly wasted show, it was outside and it was kind of, you know, to your point, end of the night headliner. It was probably the, one of the most energetic atmospheres I've ever been to at a concert. I mean, it was very special and, you know, loved the band, but wasn't like a super fan, right? It was kind of like, this will be cool. We'll get to see these guys. And I just remember being like, legitimately blown away by their energy live by the way they played instrumentation was so tight and it was just like everything worked everything worked and you know it's it's sad to look back now and realize that boy we saw him he was probably not in a very good place but you'd never know when he got out there I mean, he was seemingly enjoying it he was spinning around doing all of this you know all of his moves and um it was special. Um, and of course, you know, seeing him the first time, Catherine wheel open. Good Lord. What a show. I, I don't know if you remember Sorry. the details of that, but again, our mom was taking us to concerts and she was thoroughly convinced that the best way to go to a concert was to not buy tickets in advance. You <laughs> right. would go and you would buy them in the parking lot. And this is sort of between when that was running rampant and when you could like go to jail for it. It was sort of that, like you can do it, just be smart about it. Pay with cash. Don't be stupid. Like 
Yeah, they didn't have StubHub back then, right? Correct. And so we went, we didn't have tickets. We bought them in the parking lot. And as it turns out, we got these amazing seats. We ended up like 20th row on the floor. Yeah, yeah we did. And Catherine Wheel opened up. And that's when you fell in love with the Catherine Oh, Wheel. my God. I was like, who are these guys? They're so good. <laughs> Remember, they played Black Metallic last, and I, oh, we were just stunned. We were grueling. stunned. Yeah. yeah. It's like, wait, we get to see another band after that? Like, you know. That was, that was the sentiment. You just nailed it. It was like we were totally, you know, so overwhelmed by the magnificence of the Catherine Wheel. Yeah. And then it was like, holy crap, now we get to see NXS. I know. I know. And they came show. out and just Michael Hutchins was right off the bat was just incredible. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. Just awesome. Hell of a show. Palace of Auburn Hills, right? Hey, while we're at it, let's do a top five. I think this is a, a good band to uh, throw one out there. And then obviously we'll dig into the record. But uh, these guys go a long way back. I'll be interested to see how deep in your uh, catalog uh, you want to go. But how, how do you feel? You want to do it? Yeah, let's. I think this is gonna be really difficult, but let's do it. Yeah, I, I <laughs> gotta know, tell you, I gotta say that you know, I kind of thought through mine a little bit, and at first it was like this is tough, but then honestly, like it was like a flood. Like all of a sudden, it was just I wrote down the five, and it was like, oh yeah, of course those are the five, right? So, yeah. Well, let's start with you. But are you gonna go in order? Or are you just gonna throw the five out there? I, I actually can. I think I'm able to put them in order. All right. Well, you can put them in order ish if you want. But why don't you? Uh, why don't you kick it off? What's your first one? Yeah, I, I, I will kick it off. And I'm going to go with, uh, for number five, the title track of the album that came before Kick, which is the song Listen Like Thieves off of mm. Listen Like Thieves. Oh. Very, very well constructed song. Catchy, a perfect capture of its time. It just sounds like something from the mid 80s that would sound wonderful on the radio. Hutchins' voice is really coming into its own at this point. And it's got that jangly, you know, guitar thing going on. And that became the signature sound. So number five for me, T, is Listen Like Thieves. What's your number five? My number five, New Blaze, is off tonight's album. And it's Never Tear Us Apart. So we'll get to it. Really? I would have never guessed that was on your list. Mm. What's your next one? T, number four for me is... Off of the album Full Moon Dirty Hearts, the show that we saw the tour of. And it is the song The Gift, which was the first single off of that. Just a big, huge drum sound. Yeah. Loud guitars. I know that Full Moon Dirty Hearts is like this heavy album. It's just got this gigantic sound, more so than anything else they did. And I think it's the band trying to be a little bit of a hard rock is a little heavy, but you know, grunge in 1993, they're they're buying into that. And the gift is this huge song. T, what's your number four? All right. You ready? Now pay attention here. All right. Number four for me is Heaven Sent off of uh, Welcome to Wherever You Are. I would have predicted that was your second or first, to be honest. Track two. Yeah. Uh, just a freaking jam. It's so driving. It's so good. And the distorted vocal, too, right? That, that was... Uh, Still at this time, something you didn't expect to hear from a band like this. And uh, what a great effect. Very well produced song. Want to hear another tidbit about that song? Sure. One of the first songs you ever learned on guitar. Oh, you're right. I think I, think I played it incorrectly, but you know, nonetheless. Gave you it played it incorrectly and nonstop, but we're going to count it as you learning it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. What's your next one, buddy? Next one is off of tonight's album. This was a rather easy one. Placement was a little tough. And that is number three. New sensation. 
Oh, okay. Second track off of kick. Number three, new sensation. What's your number three? Uh, my number three is track three on welcome to wherever you are. Deep cut called communication. Oh, that's in my next five. I will have to go through our next five. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, it's uh, it, I know, right? Jam. Just a freaking jam. That I'll tell you the front half of that record. I mean, you're really the first eight tracks of that record. Boy, that's something. Uh, it, that song is relentless. The way yeah. it builds, it just builds and builds. I love yeah, it. the yeah. drum beat and everything. I mean, that that's uh, a great choice, man. That is. <laughs> but what do you got next? Number two is is, in my opinion, easily the most underrated song in the NXS catalog. It's one of the most kind of overlooked songs from the era, and that is the closing track off of X, a song called "Hear That Sound." Oh, okay. Beautiful, beautiful song, just with this like guiding keyboard melody, and again, it's got a, a key change that really works and very inspirational sound. It's a, it's an awesome closer to a you know fairly underrated album, I would say overall. With X, T, what's your numero dos? Uh, my numero dose is track four on Welcome to Wherever You Are, and that is Taste It. And this three-song run, which obviously is what I basically just did, <laughs> of Heaven Sent, Communication, and Taste It is just blistering. I mean, it's like, you know, anybody thought that these guys were sort of cooling off, you know, because um, this was the record after X, you know, they were mistaken because this is like as blazing as this band got. And you know, they go on to show some dynamics for the remainder of that record and some kind of more ballady stuff with some kind of neat instrumentation and showing kind of a sweeter side to the group. But then that, that trio right there of jams is tough to beat. So taste it is number two. Nub, what is your number one from the great in excess? My number one was very easy. It's super, super uh, easy choice. This was easier than all the other four. And all the other ones that didn't make the top five. And that is the second track and the title track off of the last album with Michael Hutchins. The song Elegantly Wasted. Yeah, from you love Elegantly that one. Wasted. I yeah, love you've always, oh, you've, from this, from the moment that song was released, uh, you've been a huge fan of it. That's great. That's great. It's such a clever melody that he sings over the verse. And then this big sort of stadium chorus. And the song just never quits. I mean, it's, I, I don't can't remember how long it is, but it just never ends. It's probably only five minutes long or so, but it, it's just got this unbelievable pace to it. it. It's got a nice climax at the end with in the background vocals too. You know, all the Ferris guys and everybody singing those background vocals. Very, you know, important part of the sound. So they could really blend vocals well and not surprising because all three brothers sang, you know, background, but their background vocals, you could really get a sense for it live. Um, we're pretty important to this band. You know, Hutchins gets a lot of vocal credit and should, but yeah, those guys were important. And that song was a showstopper at the show that we saw in 97. All right. Which, which song off welcome to wherever you are tops your list. <laughs> Actually, I don't think it, I, my prediction is this, it, it's a song off X. Who's the guy in the politic, the old political show that used to say wrong. Oh yeah. The, uh, was, it was like McLaughlin, McLaughlin, McLaughlin group. Yeah, the McLaughlin group. Yeah. Wrong. That was a great Dana Carvey. Bit, yeah, right? was, uh, yeah. Wrong again there, nub. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I understand why you'd think that cause there are a couple other dandies, but this is not a difficult choice for me. And really, um, the tough part is deciding, do I like the live baby live or the version on the album X? And they're both incredible, so it's hard to pick. 
that would be the only difficult decision as far as, you know, my top one favorite in excess song. It is the stairs track three on X, which is, uh, it is an incredible song. I love the way it builds that sort of, uh, cadence of it and that really, really strong backbeat that they, that they generated. And Hey, that was another Chris Thomas produced, uh, effort there on X. So perfect combination of composition, vocal instrumentation and production, which certainly I think the band found on that great track three off X, the stairs. And certainly they found a few times on kick. What do you say? We kick into it, nub. Let's kick it. All right, Nub. Let's 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 get some honesty going here. All right, let's get some real talk. You ready? Do you flip this song? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, I like it for about a minute, but yeah, then it's it's like a halfway through the song flip. I'll, I'll explain my take on the opening track. It's it's a very interesting opener, isn't it? Interesting is certainly a word for it. Guns in the sky. So I, you know, obviously I'll turn it over to you for your, uh, your theory, you know, that you already, uh, teased us with, but I mean, to me, it serves as, as, as much of an intro as it does a song because it's got that pretty steady cadence and um, certainly fairly repetitive from a riff standpoint. But that's the way I have always kind of looked at Guns in the Sky is that it's really just a table setter uh, more so than an actual song, but never a great sign for a record when you're inclined to flip track one when track one actually does have uh, music. So what do you think? What's your theory on it? So I agree with all that. It's, it's a James Brown homage, in my opinion. It, it sounds like a, you know, something that James Brown would do with this re- repetition and then this kind of freewheeling vocal over the top of it. I, I think this band was like so influenced by funk. And I think they saw this as that, you know, lay a, a bed down with this big groove. I do like the riff. I think the riff is cool. There's a lot of things they could have done with this to make for a much better opening track. But I, I just... I agree with you. I think it's a mood setter more than anything else, but musically in terms of the song, it's, it's like a funk song. It's just relentless. And then he's basically doing a James Brown impression over the top of it with all of the extracurricular activities, you know? Yeah. That's a good call. I mean, obviously Hutchins and and really, I think all the guys to your point, they were heavily influenced by uh, R and B and funk music and these type of things. And you can certainly get a sense for that. As we mentioned earlier, it was part of the, concern from the label was that this thing tried to mix too many genres and tried to incorporate certain things that really weren't on mainstream pop radio from a beat and groove and rhythm standpoint. I mean, much like the, all of the tracks on kick, it's exceptionally well produced. So I think it's one of those, it's not like a great song and it's not really a memorable starter. You know, Thompson certainly did a good job making something out of it. And it does serve as an intro to the classic track two, New Sensation. 
uh, trademark highly. Co- so I talked earlier about guitar compression. There's an ultimate example of that. I think that's a heavily compressed, you know, clean tone with, you know, probably a little bit of flanger on it, I would guess, is what kind of creates that that wavy sound. Um, it's a great tone. It's a great part. It's a great lick. I know you had this in your top five, so I'm uh, expecting to hear uh, positive sentiment on the song. But, you know, this is a classic from the time period, certainly. And boy, was it a good live song, too, huh? Yeah, the, the, as mentioned, the version on Live Baby Live is such a huge opener. You could just imagine Wembley Stadium just going insane. You know, Guns in the Sky doesn't have any compositional fascination. This is like perfect composition, kind of chugging verses. You've got the drums double up during the chorus, which raises your interest. The background vocals, again, with that call and response thing works very, very well. New Sensation is, you know, it's basically like a perfect song. Michael Hutchins is dialed in. You know, if the, if the first one is his James Brown thing, this is much more of a pop sensibility just vocally and uh, it shows his range too. So yeah, perfect Ferris, perfect Hutchins, New Sensation's a keeper for sure. Track three is incredibly important to the entry point of this record, particularly in the U.S. This was, I believe it was the most successful song in the U.S., uh, a very memorable video, which was directed by Joel Schumacher, actually. And Kirk Pengilly, the sax player, uh, said that he did not like the video because he thought it was, quote, too American. So it's like, you got Joel Schumacher to direct the damn thing. It's going to be pretty yeah. Americana. Don't you <laughs> what think, do you right? expect? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but this one, you know, Chris Murphy uh, famously, you know, shopped this song to college radio before the drop of the album and sort of did that as part of this whole self-funded effort to, to really, he really believed in this song and wisely um, developed a nice sort of niche college audience with this track, which really helped push this band beyond just what they had done with their previous single off their previous album and really let a new audience for these guys, a younger audience know that these guys had come on with something very new and very different and very sexy, right? With devil inside. Look at the faces, listen to the bells. It's hard to believe we need a place called hell. Now, it's a song where um, everything kind of fell perfectly, right? I mean, you've got a, a riff that's undeniable. And Andrew Ferris, you know, proves time and time again on this record that the riffs and licks are just unstoppable. Now, they're pretty simple. You know, there's nothing in terms of complex musicianship here. There's nothing that, frankly, in some cases probably hadn't done in some stylistic capacity before. But the way they were able to establish groove and beat, and then obviously Hutchins nails it both lyrically and vocal line wise. That like whole, full, full Jim Morrison here. Exactly. <laughs> like and, complete. And that whole outro, the din, 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 is musically so good and just so rich. Everything works. It's probably the most perfectly constructed 
and perfectly produced song on the record. I feel like Devil Inside, just everything works. Boy, you must have gotten, you know, three tracks into this thing and thought, boy, these guys really did something good here. Yeah, it's great composition. I think that driving beat gave it its pop sensibility. Obviously, the riff is really catchy, too. I mean, it's almost like one of those songs where it feels like there was a lot of thought put into it, but also not a lot of thought put into it. There's a spontaneity to it. Yet it's so well constructed that obviously there was some uh, carefulness to the crafting of it. So yeah, you got to love it. I agree with that. I think that's a good take. And man, there are some good electro beats on this thing too, right? And and again, that was something that was pretty unique at the time in terms of taking a guitar band, you know, and a band that had been more sort of new wavy in its roots, and coming up with these, you know, more sort of static, you know, electronic beats. And that beat that intros the song and sort of takes you throughout really is just iconic. I mean, it's really, really good. The next one, I guess, isn't it sort of two songs? I mean, I know in the video, they sort of mashed them together. Is it, is it two songs? Is it one song? I I think we should do it as one because uh, the video is really the, the imagery of the song really comes in the video. And that was one. So I always counted it as one. All right. Well, shucks, let's play them one after the other then. And then we'll get your take. This is need you tonight, which goes into mediate or is it meditate i don't know that's up for debate hey You the saxophone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. saxophone is it? <laughs> no, I think it's real. I mean, hey, these guys had a dedicated sax player. But like we've said many times, you never really know what's going on in the studio, do you? But my bet would be that that having, you know, the acoustic sax of Kirk Pengelly, which obviously was always very critical to the NXS sound, I would imagine that they had him go ahead and play it. One of my favorite moments on the album, for sure is the opening line to mediate, you know, cause you, you get through need you tonight, which is just this like oozing of sexiness song, right? I mean, you can imagine some of the uh, activities in the eighties that maybe had this as a soundtrack, you know, because <laughs> it really was it's such a sexy song with this beat and even the guitar lick itself. I mean, that had to be this, one word. This and uh, Ragdoll by Aerosmith. Remember the video with the shadows like humping yeah. each other? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. So, yeah. Just so weird. So 80s and weird. So but. 80s and weird. But Andy Ferris must have written that guitar lick and just been like, oh, that's a hit. The track listing did list this as meditate on some pressings and mediate on some others. So I don't know. I guess we're guess we're going with mediate, but it's kind of you know, weird. The, the record I'm holding right now says mediate. So I'm going to go with that. But yeah, you're, you're right. I, I, I called it meditate here and there. There's a famous story on this song where Andrew Ferris was actually, he was getting into a cab to go meet Michael Hutchins in Hong Kong. If you can imagine the fricking shenanigans that went down in Hong Kong <laughs> yeah. you know, before kick and Andrew Ferris had this beat in this sort of minimalist riff and he got in the cab and all of a sudden into his head popped dent, 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 d
told the cab driver to hang on. He almost missed his flight, went back into his apartment, laid down the guitar track onto a cassette, grabbed it, ran back into the cab. The cab driver was all pissed off. I guess it took him like 40 minutes. And, uh, but he had that riff on the cassette tape and that was part of what he took to Hong Kong and put in front of Michael Hutchins. And then, you know, rather famously, I guess Hutchins came up with the vocal line in 14 minutes. He took the cassette, went into another room, came back with lyrics and a vocal line and a classic was born. You hear those stories a lot with uh, these type of songs where it's almost seems like the more important the song, oftentimes the shorter time it took to develop. No idea how long this one took to develop because we get to our first sort of deep cut here on Kick with The Loved One. good i think it's you know for kind of being the first uh album track on the thing and you know you get all the way obviously to track six to get you there i think for it being the first album track it holds up pretty nicely you know the thing with nxs man is like nothing was ever very tricky or difficult this is all pretty basic stuff and in many cases these are pretty basic rock pop progressions that you hear on kick. Now, as they got later in their work, they started to do some things that were a little bit more experimental as far as riffs and progressions. And certainly early in their career, they were pretty out there and pretty unique. So this is definitely their most, I suppose their, their progressions could be described as fairly cookie cutter on this record. But then you layer in the vocals and you layer in the backing vocals, which are a huge part of kick, the instrumentation, the layering, and certainly the production. And you get these songs that at their essence, if you were hearing somebody play them on an acoustic guitar in a bar, you'd be like, boy, this is very simple. But obviously the, the sort of richness of it in the way that it was recorded and produced, you know, gives you something that certainly comes across as more dynamic and more thicker oftentimes when it actually isn't. And I think The Loved One is a good example of that. What do you think of the first album cut on Kick? I've always really loved this song. It sounded like a hit. Uh, but yeah, and, and I think it's a nice conclusion to side one. I, I don't typically, we've talked about this before. I don't typically like things in a waltz or songs that have a lot of swing to them. I think it works really, really well here. It's, it, it's all about the chorus. You know, I think the verse is a little dumpy, but builds to a nice chorus. And again, that waltzy thing really works there. So yeah, I, I, I really like the love one, man. Flip the record and it kicks off with wildlife. So obviously, you know, you get this uh, very distinct kick sound in terms of drums, in terms of keyboards, in terms of guitars, in terms of what Hutchins is doing. It's a very kick like song. You know, that, that's one of the things that's kind of cool about this record is when you hear a song off of it, even if it's not a well-known song, you can tell that it was on kick. X took on an even further and even more polished, believe it or not, production sound, which actually brought on a lot of criticism. People thought it was very overproduced. Uh, and then sort of their later work went, went back to being stuff that was a little bit more raw. And obviously their early work was like stripped down new wave. So 
Um, I think wildlife's a good example of if you heard it. And even if this wasn't one of your favorite tracks on the record, you pretty much knew that not only was this in excess, but it probably was on kick. So it's not my favorite uh, on the record, but you know, I guess it gets uh, side two off to uh, a little bit of an energetic start. I think it's a really solid song. First, First of all, I love your analysis. I think it's quintessential kick. All the elements are there. Was never going to be a hit though. There's just so many other songs in here that overshadow it in terms of hit potential, but I like kind of the steadiness of it. Kind of gets back to kind of that bigger groove after the loved ones. So that's an okay start to side two. Anytime they had strings on their records, even in their later work, they used full orchestras and recorded with full orchestras. And these sound like keyboards, but who knows? Either way, provides a really stunning backdrop to, you know, one of the better. I'm not even sure if it's, I guess it's sort of a mid tempo ballad in Never Tear Us Apart. Nubs, uh, do you recall? The other album we've done, I think this is within our last like 10 episodes or so. That was in 1987. Do you recall which record it was? Trying to go through the catalog in my head. Talk about a short term memory, huh? (laughs) It was Faith. And I think that there are some elements here, at least production wise, that are a little Faith esque that took on some orchestral sort of feel, but in a pop sense, it's very much a pop song, but has some of this unique instrumentation that I think really took it up a notch. Now they intended for this to be a piano ballad. I think the idea here was that this would be something that was really stripped down and probably very minimalist and piano driven. Instead, it became strings driven and probably, you know, a good call because I think that's really what leads to this song having as much feeling as it does and being as compelling as it is. I like that they don't try to do too much on it. You know, you've got the pauses. It's probably the most stripped down song on the thing. You do have the sax solo and some of those things, but you know, you're really being driven here by drums, strings, and you know, a little bit of a low end. I mean, there's um, hardly any guitar. You can hear some of that and those type of licks. But it's not really driven by those um, common instruments that you see throughout kick. And it's a little bit more stripped down and, you know, I suppose acoustic in its nature, albeit driven by probably a a rather sizable collection of orchestration. But beautiful song. It made my top five. I think it's um, really an outstanding track from the 80s and probably fairly timeless. Very interesting. It was the second song and three songs in six, eight, because the loved one in this sort of have a similar feel. Again, that waltzy sort of deal. You know, this is a very romantic song. I mean, this was, I'm sure this was many couples, you know, songs with each other in the 80s and things like that. And also, you kind of get the first glimpses of Hutchins sort of a desperation. You know, he's not partying on this song, he's really belting it out. Got, he had such range. I mean, he really did. He could croon low and he could sing really high and you kind of get all that here. So a very important part of kick for sure. He may have had a lot of Jim Morrison tendencies, but I think it's fair to say he had a bit more range than Jim Morrison. Is that fair? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Morrison's range went from this to about 
this. (laughs) Yeah. And he would just get louder. He could just (laughs) climb the ladder. So he would just turn up the volume. Right. This City is, of Night is about as much range as you ever got from yeah, Jim. And he, and he could barely get there, let's be honest. Oh, it took a lot of Jack Daniels to get him there. <laughs> Part two of a pretty good three-song run here. This was a huge hit outside of the U.S. and a pretty big hit in the U.S., Mystify. There's plenty to like here. I, I think the the backing vocals are actually killer. You know, I think that that's what really brings it to life and makes it special. You know, you're getting a little formulaic here. And sometimes, you know, Andrew Ferris could be accused of that a little bit in terms of this being, you know, riff based and beat based. And there's a little bit, you know, I understand why it was a single for me. There's a little bit of a, okay, I get it guys on this where, you know, it's like, I like the bounce. I like the groove, but there's something about when you get to this point in the record. And I think it's saved a little bit by the next track, which gives you a whole different look at tempo and things where it's like, okay, like I I get this, where are we going next? And, And for me, that's mystify. I think that I almost feel like maybe it's a track they could have placed on X and held this one out for the next album. But I don't know. What do you think? Nub? I've always hated this song. I never liked it. I always thought it was a really strange thing that it became as popular as it did. It's got the ingredient in it. That is the thing I can't tolerate, which is, I think it's emotionless. Ah, It just lacks emotion completely. I think you use the right word formulaic. It, it, it's like a blues song or a country song. It has to sound like this. So they crowbar the elements of the song into what it's supposed to be versus yeah. letting the thing happen organically, which you can't say about most of their songs on the record. There may be a couple others, but it's easily my least favorite of all the hits. And it's in the bottom tier of the album for all those reasons. I think that's well said. I always kind of wish that Never Tear Us Apart could take you right into this one. Title track. The upbeat and rather blazing kick. Sometimes you get kicked, man. <laughs> you do, you know, right, right in the arse, you know, or right in the squaw in the nuts. You know, sometimes that happens to squan the nits. Uh, I didn't really discover kick until like 10 years ago. You know, it, it was, it's late in the album. It wasn't really one of the notable tracks that you heard. I mean, I think it was a me- medium single, maybe in some parts of the world. But I, when I discovered it, I was really excited. It was like, oh, this song's good. This is like a gem sort of late in the album. It's the title track, so you think you would have heard of it, but I think it's you, really... You never met a title track you didn't like. No. You love title tracks. You do. You do. I don't know. I don't know. There have been some that suck, but, you know, <laughs> I like the the energy of it, you know, and I think that it's unique on the record. So as formulaic as Mystify was, I think this is the opposite. It really picks up tempo. Some really sort of let loose um, vocals from Hutchins really like reaching for it, which I like. And the horns and the progression, again, it's very simple progression. There's nothing tricky about this. 
but it really works in terms of being a perfect sort of foundation for this chorus and for kind of this main theme of the track. I think it's quite good. I almost wish the record ended here, but what do you think? A kick? You know, we, so we've heard some James Brown, we've heard some funkadelic, more rock funk sort of things. We've heard some like Curtis Mayfield type of stuff. This is straight Motown. I mean, this is just, it's a Motown song, you know, and it's cool to hear. I always like hearing people from, you know, one part of the world imitate music from another part of the world. So to hear a bunch of Australians do their take on Motown is very cool. Especially as we talked about in the Four Tops Reach Out episode, you know, Motown music is ingrained in us as Detroit area Michiganders. And so, yeah, to, to hear a different take on Motown is always cool. I really like Kick. I, I agree with you. I think it, it holds an important place in the album late. And it's just straight Motown. And you got to love it. Close out with two tracks here, probably the two least known tracks or least renowned tracks on the record. Track 11 is Calling All Nations. Boy, is that produced or what? (laughs) (laughs) Just a little. I think they need a little more production on this one. Uh, I mean, there, there, you know, there's a lot to like. It's cool that that guitar looks cool, but you know, I mean, it's not terribly memorable. But boy, it's almost production overload here. It's like calling all nations. It's like calling all producers. You know, it's like (laughs) yeah, just chip in here. Let's add another layer. I mean, God only knows how many tracks are on this deal, but uh, on the deal there, but. Uh, you know, second to last track, we're kind of winding down. It's got some decent energy to it, but not terribly memorable. I do really like the strength of the sound. It's a ginormous sound just coming out of this song. So I dig that. You're right. It's a ton of production. And uh, I think here you are capturing the guys a little bit just as players, you know, just it, it but it's a stadium song. You know, I don't know if they played this on the kick tour, but it, it would have been an effective live song. At least, uh, you know, as they were promoting this record. But yeah, I, I like it more for the production value than the composition itself. But yeah, it's nice. Well, again, I, I wish they would have closed the thing with the title track, but instead we close rather, you know, immemorably, in my opinion, with Tiny Daggers. pretty you don't like uh, it huh i think it's kind of safe and kind of simple and i mean listen they you know they are obviously going for a fist pumper you know i think to your to use your term a a bit of a stadium one here and i mean it, it works i think most things on this record just you know after they went through the production phase you know work just fine uh but you know i i don't find it to be one that sort of wraps it up in a bow the way you'd always prefer um, and I think there were other opportunities and ways they could have, but you know, is it one that you like, buddy? Yeah, I do. I, I really like what they do at the end. When they add this keyboard layer at the end, it kind of brings the whole thing up. I think there's a pinnacle there, but look, let's be honest to you. This, this band in excess is notorious for front loading their albums. I mean, they just did every one of their yeah. records. Look at X. It's a great point. X has like one of the best side ones of all time. And aside from here, that sound side two is like so forgettable. 
I mean, it really is, you know, uh, they did the same thing on elegantly wasted. They did, did the same thing. on welcome to wherever you are. Yeah. Certainly did the same thing on full moon, dirty hearts. And, and of course, listen, like these, I mean, they, they just piled side one always with, and not just the hits, but just the best stuff, you know? So it's probably one of the better side twos they have in their whole catalog. Never tear us apart and uh, wildlife calling all nations. And of course the title track. So that's a big part of it. And I, I think Tiny Daggers works because of what they do at the end of it. I don't think it's, it's an exceptional way to close the album, but I think it fits. I think it's the type of song that any rock group in this era, I mean, that could be Bruce Springsteen. That could be, you know, insert a lot of other, not hair metal, but certainly pop rock acts of that time. And it, you, you could have sort of, you know, inserted anybody and it could have been their song. So to me, it just lacks a little bit of, you have so much originality throughout the entire record in terms of the sound and in terms of the riffing and the cadences and those things. And that one to me just seems like a, you know, rather cookie cutter, which, you know, from time to time, there were some moments on kick as we've talked about that couldn't sort of get that way and get in that direction. All right. Well, that's a wrap buddy on kick. Did it matter? I think it's a nice snapshot of the eighties in terms of uniqueness. It's a little bit like what we talked about with a flock of seagulls, the debut album. It's very eighties, but it's also super unique to what else was going on. You know, they're, they were a little bit peerless in terms of their actual musical style. We mentioned a couple bands earlier, U2, Simple Minds that maybe followed a similar trajectory, but NXS sound was really unique to NXS. It was very singular. And so I like the snapshot that it provides in the sense that it's quintessential 80s, but it's also very different from some of the other stuff that people might consider quintessential 80s, but really is sort of a load of crap. And we, we know who some of those bands are. So, but what's interesting about NXS and Kick, it has not you know, translated to the new generation. We talk about this a lot in the podcast. I don't think there's a kid out there in high school, middle school that would even know who NXS is. And there's a lot of reasons for that. So yeah, I, I, I like the snapshot of it. For those of us that are 40 something, 50 something, I think this all means a lot. You know, I think this is one of those records that many people owned. So I think it's generational for sure. But uh, it certainly matters to us, I would say. I think, it's, I think Kick is a key part of our musical upbringing. T, what do you think? Does it matter? I think the only thing that really sort of mattered about Kick is the fusion element. I mean, this sax thing, this sort of R&B stuff, some of these funk beats, it was pretty unique and pretty innovative to sort of take guitar licks and put them over that. And then of course, I think you make some great comparisons to James Brown and Motown and some other things that Hutchins certainly was into and certainly used as influences on a lot of these tracks. Other than that, you know, it really sort of doesn't, I mean, you don't really hear about it. Um, it was a huge record at the time. And, and certainly there are some tracks that are timeless, but you don't really hear this as like a must have or, you know, a record from the eighties that really defined it. It's kind of a feel good, you know, sort of nostalgic thing. But in terms of really getting a lot of musical notoriety and a lot of musical acclaim, um, and who knows, maybe the band's abrupt ending uh, with Hutchinson's death had to do with that, and maybe they'd have a little bit more legacy if they were able to demonstrate some longevity. I mean, you know, but as far as being uh, acclaimed and sort of notorious of the time, 
I'm not sure. And I think that probably it doesn't matter the way that uh, the way that some other records from this era did a little bit more and, and got a little bit deeper. You know, it's not an incredibly deep record. I mean, that's why Never Tear Us Apart, I think, is such a standout because, you know, as you said during it, you, you see some of that depth that in some cases during some of the cookie cutter moments and those type of things throughout the remainder of the record where they're really relying more on production than they are on really, really quality songs. I think you miss out on that from time to time here. So, um, yeah, probably didn't matter as much as it should, but whether it mattered or not, let's see where it stands on your final cut nub. Is it on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or is it in the for sale bin? What do you got on 1987's NXS kick, buddy? I've got kick in the collection because I think it stands as one of the best albums of the 80s. If you're going to build a well-rounded collection, have it in there. There are too many, I wouldn't say low points. It might be a little harsh, but it's not a cohesive experience top to bottom enough for me to put it on the turntable. But I got to tell you, T, that the, the side one, I mean, name me a better side one from the 80s in terms of pop music. I'd like to hear it because, I mean, you know, you're talking about hit songs, interesting songs, kind of a nice way to introduce the album. And, you know, it is one of the greatest front men that we experienced in the eighties and nineties and, and one who's gone. So this is sort of the legacy that's left. So I think in the collection T, I think that this has a rightful place in any record collection. That's worth a damn. Where do you get the final cut T? Well, I must not be worth a damn. I'm putting this in the for sale bin. And, Ooh, here, and, here's, and here's why, buddy. Uh, great songs don't necessarily mean great album. And I think that when you look at some of the um, sort of lack of depth here, when you look at some of the moments where it becomes a little bit repetitive, when you look at the fact that you're inclined to flip track one, which I think is never a good sign. And quite honestly, I think it might be NXS's. I mean, I know it's their most well-known album, but I think it's maybe their like fourth best. Welcome to wherever you are is in my collection, you know, and kicks not. So I is I think that you can accomplish what you need to from this by going with an NXS compilation. I know that's sacrilege, but I'm just gonna say it. I think that, you know, when you look at some of the evolution of the group as they proceeded, there was some better work. Now, these songs are timeless. They're great. They're very nostalgic. They're very memorable. But I don't see a need to own this. I really don't. I think if you have Welcome to Wherever You Are and you know, maybe X, if you're inclined, maybe, um, what is it? Shabua, Shabua? How do you say it? How you say? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You know, those type of things that, that captures a little bit of their earlier work. I mean, I sort of get that. But listen, I think kicks a classic in the eyes of most, but I'm going for sale bin because I don't own it and I don't really see a need to own it. I think you can accomplish what you need to do by picking off the best tracks and sort of leaving the rest behind. I think it closes in a pretty weak fashion with the two tracks. I wish they would have ended it with kick. I think they could have sized. I mean, it's already a fairly short album. These are not long songs, but I think they even could have trimmed a little bit more fat off of it just to make it super efficient. So, and, and, uh, and let's be honest. Not only is Welcome to Wherever You Are in your collection, but huh? Yeah. Now you, got, 
You got a brand new copy of it. Now I got now I got an eco pack because you and the boys chipped in and got me these got you this gift. Yes. Well, hey, listen and thank you. I not every episode are you bearing gifts, you know. So uh I sure I sure appreciate that. And let's see if I appreciate also what tracks you've been listening to here lately. You know, good good songs don't necessarily mean great album, but you know, good songs are still good songs. So let's see what's in your head. I was going to say only, only one Dolores. There you go. Two. All right. <laughs> what's in your head, Nubbles? Well, what's in my head right now is a band that just reunited, which is great news to me as a huge fan. And that is the band Mudvayne and the song Not Falling. They just played their first show in 12 years or 13 years or something like that. Good to have the boys from Peoria, Illinois back. And I've been listening to Not Falling quite a bit. Second would be from a band that I was supposed to see recently, but they postponed their tour, which is really sad because love these guys. And that is Chevelle with the Did song. they do it because of that stupid, pesky, snooping, chewing at your heels coronavirus? Is that why they did it? Yeah, they did. Yep. Oh. <laughs> that darn thing, you know. Oh. Enjoy Ride Omen from the, not the new album, but the one that came out before it. And third would be a uh, kind of deep cut from Avril Lavigne's Under My Skin, which is a great Avril Lavigne album. And that is Forgotten, which is a song where she really sings her heart out. And I love Forgotten. So it's a great, it's a great album. Uh, hey, um, quick health update as we wrap. How are you feeling? You know, did the coat, is the COVID gone? Can you smell? Can you taste? You got any like lasting effects? I mean, what's up? You good? Oh, from my uh, bout with the vid? Yeah. Yeah, right. no, things have been really good. I appreciate you asking. My uh, voice hasn't fully recovered. That's kind of one of the longstanding byproducts. You, apparently. Do, you do sound a little a little raspy. But yeah. maybe you're, I thought maybe you were going for the Michael Hutchins sexiness. You know? Oh, dude, listen, if I could, if I could even come close. Uh, to hit to the level, to the ooziness of sexiness. That he yeah. was. No, it, that's about it. And uh, smell and taste are back. So I never lost my taste. Thank God. I, I was, that's why I was really dreading the most. Yeah. But uh, yeah, man, all good. All good. Good to hear, buddy. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. T, what is, uh, you don't have the vid, do you? You got the vid? Everyone's no, well, no. I, everyone's going to get the vid. I've Everyone. somehow avoided, I kind of want to get it, just, you know, build up that immunity. Yes. But, uh, yeah, totally. No, I've I've been able to sidestep the thing. But nice, hey, that, nice. that, thing's, that thing's really pesky, you know? It, may, yeah. it might bite me right in the caboose. It can know, do a few things, yeah. I'm not looking. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. T, what is in your head? I got a track by uh, New Orleans' own The Meters uh, called Pungy. That's off uh, Look Up High Pie. You know, great record. Love the two first two, three records from those guys. Uh, a band sticks that you talk about a lot. And that's uh, fooling yourself. Angry young man, which is maybe my favorite stick song. I don't know. Is There's it? a lot. Yeah, it's really, there's good. a lot to choose. From. Was that on the one we did? We did pieces of eight. Is that on that record? No, it's on a grand illusion. Okay. The one that came okay. out right before it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that track. The album that's like all hits basically. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the third, speaking of, you know, just a, smash hit is uh, by Rodney James Dio. I've, I've just been loving Holy Diver. I mean, I know it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a go-to. It's not very adventurous Dio, but Holy Diver! 
Yeah, but it's a great deal. I mean, come on, Rodney. It's really good deal. It's not as good as uh, the last in line or Rainbow in the Dark, but it's still <laughs> Rainbow in the Dark's pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is there a better synth part than Rainbow in the Dark? Do do do. Oh, it's yeah. You know, yeah. It's, totally phenomenal. Totally yeah. phenomenal. Nub, do you feel like you kicked, or do you feel like you got kicked? I feel like we kicked some yeah. serious ass. Well, speak for yourself. I, yeah, personally, right. I personally think I was like a C plus at best, yeah. <laughs> but nubs enjoyed it. Uh, looking at this uh, late eighties classic back when we were just little tykes, but we still realized that there was something special going on with this band and with this record. And they certainly turned in a classic and, uh, it was fun to talk about buddy. Sure. It was man. Great choice. And, uh, you know, a little sad that you're sending your copy of kick to the for sale bin, but somebody will, gobble it up and enjoy it you know hey listen you know that that's what the final cut is all about you know a nice, a nice fair and balanced assessment and we hope that you found episode 64 64 nub to be fair and balanced and uh, wonderful and hopefully it gave you a nice little little pick me up heading into your weekend and certainly certainly we feel picked up don't we know hey by the way we have uh, a fantasy football matchup against each other on Sunday. So I just officially want to say uh, bad luck. Bad <laughs> yeah. Luck. Tr- don't worry. You're going to get me. I'm not even, I've already resigned myself that I'm taking that L this week. I don't know. I'm two and five. I'm having a horrible year, but it is always nice to square up. In fact, you know, I don't know if we've talked about this last year, you joined my fantasy football league for the first year and me and a bunch of buddies and freaking nubs comes in and wins the damn thing in year one. And who did he beat in the finals? Yours truly. And I was like, you know, they have the favorites, you know, I was favored by like 40 points. I had such a better team on paper and you know, nubs just wins the freaking league in year one. So I, I, this is my first chance at a little bit of payback. So hopefully that goes well here on Sunday. I will never manage a fantasy team better than that performance last year. I had no business winning that league. And, uh, Found a way. Notice how he puts it all in the manager. Puts it all well, in the Well, in fantasy football, it doesn't have a lot to do with it, you know? Mm, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> Players hey, win games. Players win games. More importantly, both our teams suck right now. Maybe we can both. Yeah. You know, yeah. Lions can get themselves off the schneid and oh, you know, the freaking Chiefs don't even get me started. Anyway, uh, we yeah, hope the, you enjoy- no, Let's just make one thing clear. The Lions, the Detroit Lions are not kicking. They are getting kicked. Right? <laughs> right exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think both both squads are getting kicked pretty good right now. But hey, you know, hopefully they will find a, a new sensation, you know, here in the uh, back half of the season. Hey, oh, because being a Lions fan, it's like having a devil inside. Yeah, that that's an old sensation, you know, right there of losing, you know. But uh, hey, Nubs, thanks, buddy. And uh, we will see you uh, next for episode 65 where we will bring you something hopefully rather delightful here on Two Twins and an album. Y'all take care and be good. Two Twins. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.